Welcome back to the Fourth Away Podcast. While our series on nonviolent action was officially closed in our last episode, I wanted to create an afterword or a postscript. I don't know what it's called. Today's episode doesn't exactly fit in with the overarching theme of the season, but it, in my opinion, goes hand in hand with it. So I decided to kind of tack it on here at the end. This particular episode has two purposes. First, I want to use it as a glue that kind of brings in several of our seasons and ties them together. And second, I want to extend our season on nonviolent action here and give you some content that you can use to jump off of as you take a look at history, as well as as you contemplate what the future might look like. So, let's jump right in. As I had come to the end of my saved audiobooks on Scribd, a recommended reading came up entitled The Internationalists. The title summary had something to do with ending war and establishing peace, but it honestly sounded like a pretty dry book. And it might be, for for those of you who don't like history, you might consider it dry. But, because I had nothing else going on, I did start to listen to it, and man am I glad I did. It was a fantastic read. A really long, long read, but a fantastic read. It was just, it, it was captivating. The book starts off by giving a history of war in the imperialist West. So from like, I don't know, 1400s or so onward. And the main focus in the, in the book is on this guy that I had been hearing a lot about in my readings uh, over the past few years, all the way from like Yoder's book on just war, even extending into William Lane Craig's book on the atonement. In fact, I had heard so much about this particular person that I had put his works on my list to read later like much later, um, because, I don't know, I, th- I think it's going to be a little bit complex. But anyway, the man's name is Hugo Grotius. Now, Grotius is famous because he is known today as the father of international law. And modern historians tend to view Grotius as this force for good, a man who set out to limit and restrain warfare. However, the book The Internationalist delves into a full history of Grotius in light of more modern revelations of, of some of the documents that surfaced in, I think, the mid-1800s, um, and just some of the, the things that Grotius said and did in his conflicts of interest. See, Grotius worked for the Dutch East India Company at one point, and they had hired him to essentially justify their piracy of a competing country's ship. Grotius basically did for companies what the 14th Amendment ended up doing when once it was interpreted. Now, the 14th Amendment protected companies as individual persons, giving impersonal entities personal rights. Grotius kind of ended up doing that for, uh, for national rights, for, for companies like the Dutch East India Company. And this, in turn, had significant implications for rights of conquest and for colonialism, which may help to explain why, in part, we saw such a rise in, in expansionism and colonialism and, and imperialism. It used to be that if you, if you bought stolen goods, like way back in the day, then you, as the buyer, had to give up those stolen goods if found, uh, if it was found out that they were stolen. For the Dutch East India Company, that, that obviously, you know, there were some big problems. If they ended up being charged with piracy and they had gained all of this stuff and then they came and distributed it, distributed it to, um, to buyers and things, like people didn't, people didn't want this to be the case. Um, 
So when Grot- Grotius uh, basically gave um, companies kind of national rights, uh, then you started to be able to be able to exploit people without without impunity. In getting the Dutch East India Company out of their piracy charges, Grotius ended up shaping the next four hundred years of of international law and and warfare. Land and goods could be fought for, and even if it ended up being determined that they were acquired by illegitimate means, that a, a country engaged with another country for nefarious purposes, whatever was gained at that time ended up becoming legitimate, uh, legitimate spoils of war, even if, even if the war was illegitimate, uh, if it was determined at the end. So nations and large companies of large nations had the benefit of the doubt because they had this state-level authority, this autonomy that Romans 13 says that rulers have, right? You know, it's their prerogative, and even if they end up being wrong, it doesn't matter. It was their prerogative. And under Grotius's system, not only were ill-gained items kept by aggressing states or, or entities considered states or with state authority, but any level of non-neutrality ended up being considered an act of war. If one country traded with another country, but not your country, then your country could take that as an act of war. Neutrality meant treating all nations exactly the same. And we see this doctrine come into play in a very significant way with the Japanese, as the United States at one point initiated what we called gunboat diplomacy in order to get Japan to open trade, right? They had to open trade with us. If Japan was going to trade with even one other nation, then they had to trade with us too. In this manner, Japan opened up, and they also learned the Western rules of warfare, which they had been oblivious to, um, since they were kind of focused inward up to this point. And this warfare, this international policy, was grounded in Grotius's international law. Fast forward a hundred or so years later, right after World War I, and much of the world had just experienced the worst war ever, and people didn't want to think about war anymore. In the shadow of this great war, the Kellogg-Briand Pact was, fo- Pact was formed, and it, it was uh, this pact that supposedly outlawed war, which in retrospect we realized that it didn't. Um, and I know that it sounds like a joke to outlaw war, and the point of this book is kind of like, yeah, everybody has viewed it as a joke, that war could possibly be outlawed. But the authors of The Internationalists do a really good job showing how this pact has actually reshaped modern warfare and, and changed the landscape of expectations and what, what goes on. The thing is, if you're going to outlaw war, then you have to have other means to stop wars besides warfare itself. So it was in this era that sanctions and non-neutrality really began to be acceptable, and countries could start not being neutral as a means to um, kind of chastise other nations, and this became uh, began to be not regarded as an act of war. You could you could actually sanction countries or have different trade policies based on um, your approval of them, and it, it didn't signal an act of war. And also, if a nation decided to take a territory through illegitimate wars then the rest of the nations chose not to recognize this takeover. And that happened several times. Um, one, one of the most notable was with um, Japan taking over, I believe it was Manchuria, uh, parts of China. 
So you just don't recognize conquest, and uh, that can hurt a nation if the international com- uh, community decides not to engage with them. And if nations engage in inappropriate war, then you just choose, um, choose to sanction them. And we have a number of countries like North Korea or Iran, which, which are sanctioned. And while it seems North Korea has kind of resigned itself to that and, and become its own little island, most countries don't want to be sanctioned, and it, and it hurts them. We see recently Iran uh, got out of sanctions because uh, they, they signed a nuclear deal with the United States and other countries. So they're like, yeah, we don't, we'll, we'll do what we need to do. Just get us out of these sanctions because they're crippling. Now, we could discuss whether such change in international policy was good or bad. It seems like it's, it's pretty good. But think about this from Japan's perspective. Japan, who had just opened up to the West and learned why this gun diplo- uh, gunboat diplomacy worked and learned the rules of Grotius, they were blindsided by this because they just started coming onto the international scene and so they're, they're following Grotius's laws when they go and, and take over parts of China and Korea and, um, and, and kind of do what they do in terms of conquest and such. So when they began to take territory and the United States and, and other countries sanctioned them severely, particularly uh, in regard to their oil, this was deemed an act of war by Japan. And it would have been an act of war just like 20 years before um, it, it was an act of war under Grotius's law, under Western law, which had just changed and, and was still kind of being solidified and worked out and uh, actually probably 10 years before, yeah. And so Japan didn't realize all of these, these consequences. And so when they attacked Pearl Harbor, that wasn't an illegitimate attack. That was perfectly understandable um, under, under the old acts of, of war and international law. And these authors do a really good job of, of digging through some primary source documents and things and showing uh, different conversations and, and understandings that people had at this time. So World War II was the first major war in which the new Kellogg-Briand Pact was, was put to the test, and it's been in play ever since. The authors argue that the face of warfare has been significantly changed ever since that day. While some countries have won back ill-lost territory from before, or while some borders which were in flux, in dispute, um, when the Kellogg-Briand Pact was implemented, while, while some of these places have kind of solidified their borders and changed a little bit, we have seen an astronomical decline in countries attacking other countries for conquest and attempting to take territory. And when that has occurred, a lot of times the countries, the territories have kind of shifted back because people just didn't recognize uh, conquest. So warfare has been significantly reduced because of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, a pact which in history books is often viewed as an ineffective and naive idea. In this pact, we can see that nonviolence comes into play at the international level. And the authors of The Internationalists do a fantastic job of showing how this has done enormous good for our modern world. I can't do justice to this book and its arguments in one short episode. So I do want to challenge you to listen to the book, uh, read the book, however you prefer it, and, and really hear the authors out. It gives a fantastic look as to how nonviolence can work on an international scale. And perhaps we even get glimpses of that in, in other stories like countries of coast, like Costa Rica, 
where there has not been a standing army since the end of World War II. And while Costa Rica is far from a perfect country, its level of conflict is not any higher than other countries in its region. And it might be argued that Costa Rica is able to reallocate its money towards other social programs in part because it knows that the international community wouldn't stand for another country invading Costa Rica and taking it over. So that international nonviolence allows for nation states, for, for countries, to implement policies of nonviolence, like Costa Rica's refusal to have a standing army. And um, I know there's, there's one other country, I think it's in the same region, but there's another country that also doesn't have a standing army. So the Kellogg-Briand Pact, this, this international nonviolent concept to end war, that seems really naive, ends up actually being vital to allowing individual nations to act in more nonviolent manners. And that's hard for us to grasp in the 20th century because a lot of uh, the wars and things that did occur took so many lives. But what, uh, again, you'll have to listen to or read the book, but the authors kind of say, well, yeah, World War II is kind of an exception because they're still trying to kind of hash out how this all this all works. Um, but by and large, most of the conflicts you're going to see in the 20th century are, um, especially the ones that kill a lot of people, are sort of internal conflicts. They're not conflicts so much between states. So whether that's China, Russia, uh, you've got those countries killing tens of millions of people, but that's that's internal. And you see um, African genocides like Rwanda and Sudan, but but even in Africa, a lot of those things are are kind of hangovers from uh, the West's imposition of of really bad drawing up really bad borders and and the the conflict that the West kind of created with the way that they went in and mingled groups and um, kind of caused conflict in there. So anyway, they they have good explanations for um, for the twentieth century and a lot of those conflicts. And they have a lot of good data. And I I challenge you to take a look at it. As I stated at the beginning, this episode was going to be kind of a a very brief overview. And likely you're going to end this with more questions than you have answers. My goal was just to wet your palate for for some bigger implications that are out there besides just individual nonviolent actions within a country. We've highlighted nonviolence from the individual level all the way to the civil group, to the nation, and here in this episode briefly, to the international level. Hopefully you've been able to catch a glimpse at the complexity of the topic of nonviolent action, and hopefully you're going to do some more digging once you leave here. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.